Well, uh, last week we endeavored, this sounds really loud to me, maybe just a little bit too loud, like I'm about to feedback. Um, last week we explored an answer to uh, a question that, that I believe is very important. And that is how do we make an effort at the Christian life to work it out in a way that does not depend upon the strength of human volition or human effort, or as Paul said, um, in the flesh. How do we live this thing out in dependence? It's a, a, a very important question. And, and by the time we got to the end of the message, the, the, the simple answer was, was faith or, or trust, that the efforts that honor the Lord in this thing called the Christian life, whether it's the effort of being a faithful husband or father or, or endeavoring to serve your community and your neighbors or love somebody or forgive somebody, that, that the only effort that really honors the Lord is an effort that comes from our trusting him and our faith that his grace is sufficient for us. Um, but by the time I got done with the message and reflected on the message, I really felt like that answer needed to sink more deeply into the flesh of life itself. Um, and so I want to this morning uh, digress a bit and, and kind of pick up where we left off last week and, and talk about how faith lives uh, in the real fallen world. Now, for me, this is not a, an intellectual thing, nor should it be for you. Um, as you well know, I don't have to tell you, Christians face the same kind of difficulties of living in a fallen world that, that unbelievers do. Um, that there are people in here who have felt the, the, um, the tragic effects of divorce, both parents as well as perhaps um, divorce yourself. Um, that people here, just because you're Christian, does not immunize you against health problems or, or cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease or... Um, Alzheimer's or, or chronic fatigue, um, that we experience those things too. That we live in a world that, that is, is fallen and is broken, and there are disappointments, and there are discouragements, there are distractions, there are failures. Um, you name it, we, we experience them here. And one of the most difficult things is living out a real faith in a fallen world. Like, how do we live out our faith in the nitty-gritty of, of everyday life? And, and that's really where I'd like to go. And so I'm, I'm going to digress from Ephesians for just a Sunday. And, um, and I want to digress or go over to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Because there is one of the most amazing chapters on faith lived out. Um, and many of you have studied the book before and know that they've titled this The Heroes of Faith. And it gives a whole list of Old Testament figures and so forth who lived out their faith um, facing all kinds of difficult struggles um, from uh, the, facing the pleasures of sin to death to torture to um, uh, inability to have children. You name it. They've experienced it. And yet we read in this chapter um, that they, they met these challenges and adversities of living in a fallen world um, with their faith. Um, so that's where I wanted to head in particular. I want to focus narrowly, more narrowly, on, on the life of Abraham. Um, more text is given to his life, really, than any other in this chapter of, of Hebrews 11. Um, but before we look at how faith works itself out by looking at Abraham's life, it, it probably would do us well just to be reminded as to what we actually believe about God or what the object of faith is. That really, when it comes to biblical faith, as, as I understand it and as I, I believe the Bible reveals it, um, that b faith is based on two irreducible facts about God. That he is the sovereign creator of all things and that he is the loving savior or redeemer of his creation. Those two things. Uh, the sovereign creator 
and the loving and gracious Redeemer. Our, our faith rests on those two things. If God was simply the sovereign creator but devoid of love, we wouldn't trust him because we won't, we won't trust somebody who we don't believe is good or loving or gracious. On the other hand, if God is all loving but he doesn't have this sovereign power and, and reign over the universe, then we may trust him, but we can't trust him fully because who's to say he can actually come through on his promises if he doesn't have all power or if he's not sovereign? So it rests on those two things, that God is the sovereign creator and he is the loving redeemer of, of his people. And those two things come to light in this in this chapter, actually, because verse 2 tells us that we believe that he created all things out of nothing. Therefore, he's the sovereign creator. And then each of the heroes of chapter 11 are people who look forward to, the, um, to what is promised, which is a, a display of God's love, a homeland, a, a city whose architect is God, that, is, that God's going to take us home to be with him. So that's his love. So that comes to light in this, this chapter, both of those things. Uh, Paul paints the same portrait in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about God as the one who um, works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's the sovereign creator. But he also does so so that he can show off his grace in the ages to come, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. So those two things of God is the sovereign creator and and God is the loving, gracious redeemer. Our, Our faith rests on that. And of course, that heart of who God is comes into concrete reality in the life of Jesus. Um, where God in his sovereign justice punishes the one instead of the many, and God as the sovereign redeemer is the one who himself bears the weight of our sin. I mean, that's where it comes to life, is in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's, that's the basis of our faith, that God is, God is the sovereign creator and God is the loving, um, gracious redeemer. That's what we believe. Now, what does faith do? How does it live in this broken, fallen world where we face all kinds of difficult things? And here, I'm going to end in, not end, but um, I'm going to be focusing on uh, Hebrews 11 in a couple of verses. But these sections in in Hebrews, um, they are based on stories found in, in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. So let me just read for you a little snippet of the story of Abraham's life, two events in particular, the event of him leaving and the event of him sacrificing. Um, The first one is found in in Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here where it says that, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here's the response to what um, God asked Abraham to do. It said, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. The next event is found in Genesis chapter 22. And this is what we read there. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So in response to these instructions, it says that so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took the two, of, two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now you skip down to verse 9 of chapter 22. We pick up the story of him on the mountain. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Um, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it uh, as a burnt offering instead, or in place of his son. Now, those two stories are reflected upon by the writer of Hebrews. And Abraham here is commended for what he did in these two two, uh, events in his life. Let me read a section from... uh, uh, well, 11 verses 8 and following, and then skip down to 17. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So that's his leaving. Now skip down to verse 17. The second event is picked up, his sacrifice or his offering of his son Isaac. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's interesting. Um, I'm going to draw out three ways in which faith lives, um, all based on Abraham's life. That one of the ways in which faith lives in a broken world is that it, 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 it it follows God's leadership. Or to put it in different terms, it, it, it submits to what God instructs, it obeys. And that is the most explicit um, statement here, is by faith Abraham obeyed. Now in both events, he is given specific instructions. Um, one is to leave your kindred, your family, your home, and go to a place that I'll show you, which Hebrews tells us he didn't know where he was going. And the second bit of instructions is to take his only son, Isaac, the promised one, his beloved son, and take him up on a mountain and and sacrifice him there. So he's given very specific instructions as to what to do. And remarkably, Abraham follows the lead of God, his king, the sovereign king, and he obeys in both instances. Now, what the writer of Hebrews alerts us to is what's behind these acts of obedience. It does not tell us that Abraham was coerced into doing this, that he was forced into doing it, that he did it to gain approval from other people as a religious person or to be accepted by God. But his amazing work of obedience in these two instances was simply a matter of his trust, that he trusted that God was sovereign in this process and that God was a good and loving person. Only those together would allow him to do the things that he did and obey in this way. 
those two things. Was it, was it easy for him? And I think it's helpful to reflect upon this for a moment because we can read the Old Testament stories and, and think that it was easy um, because the, their narrators don't give us a lot of psychological, emotional uh, background as to how they felt in the process. But if the book of Psalms is any indication as to how some of these men felt as they exercised their faith, you'd realize that they experienced the same kind of emotional difficulties, the intellectual difficulties that we do. So that King David, who's also on this list, could write in, in Psalm 13, um, How long, O Lord? You, you know, will you forget me forever? Uh, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? He's struggling with it. So that, that, that kind of window tells me that this, this wouldn't have been easy for Abraham to do. That this faith was a stretch. From our angle, it would feel like a, like a risk or a gamble with where you're going and who you're offering on the altar because he didn't know the final outcome of either of those events. The fact that he left his family, his kindred, his hometown, uh, wouldn't have been easy. He, he didn't know where he was going. That'd be hard for any one of us. He didn't have any postcards, no infomercials. He had no, no pictures. It's easier to leave North Dakota if you have a picture of California in your mind. But he, but he didn't have any pictures. He didn't know the outcome. He just said, God said, come, and, and he just simply went. And it would have been difficult to, uh, to ask of him to sacrifice the life of his his what the Hebrews calls his only son, um, would have been difficult, very difficult. Can't imagine the anticipation and the pain of anticipation of what he must have felt thinking about things like his, his, um, his son's surprised and frightful look as he raises his hand over his, his son's body or what it would feel like to, to actually plunge a knife into the flesh of his son or to watch the life slowly drain out of his little boy or to kind of reflect on the fact that he's not going to say daddy anymore. Because he didn't know the outcome. He simply trusted. He trusted. Um, and in that trust, he, he obeyed. Now, I think most of us Christians would like to, like to trust like that. Um, we'd like to just take God at his word and, and, hear, and trust that when he tells us to do things, that it comes from a good heart that he's asking us, trust me, I know you, I know the planet I've created. If you'll just follow my instructions, then you'll see that there's a blessing in it and on the other end of it. But oftentimes our faith is weak, and we have a difficult time believing that either God is sovereign in the event or that he's being good in it. And there are two things that, as I've thought about Abraham's life here in this, this text, two things in particular that seem to me to be obstacles that kind of tie down faith. Um, two things that Abraham had to face. Uh, one is the letting go of the unknown, and the other one is the letting go of what he loved the most. Those two things can easily become shackles of, of trusting the Lord and then failure to obey. On the one hand, you have the, the unknown. Obviously, he did not know where he was going. There was an unknown future to him. Um, he didn't really understand or know beyond the sacrifice of his son what was going to happen other than God was going to be true to his promise. He didn't understand how it was going to work. So there was this, this unknown out there that he just simply had to trust God with this mysterious unknown of the future. How are things going to resolve? What's the outcome going to be? Now, most of us, when we operate in the flesh, our first instinct is not to trust. Our first in instinct is to manage 
and to control so that the desired outcome can be experienced. That's typically how we fallen human beings respond. Um, not in faith first, but in control first. But here's an example of, and by the way, Abraham had that problem too. Uh, if you want to see his attempt at manipulating and control, just read the story of him and Hagar trying to have a son. It backfired. Um, God said, no, it's not going to happen that way. Um, but that's typically what we, what we do, is want to manipulate the outcomes and, and just not simply trust God at his word. And when you don't know what's going to happen in the future, it's, it's easy to mistrust the Lord and, and take your own way. Um, I know that that's the case in my life. I'm a calculator in terms of calculating things out. Um, I realized a couple of years ago in one of my relationships that I had not been forthright or perfectly truthful with somebody. Now, I know that the Lord instructs me to trust him and just to be honest, to tell the truth. And you know that too. And he impressed upon me that truth. It's like, Dan, you need to go to this person and tell them the whole truth. And immediately, my mind started calculating what would be the outcome. If I go to this person and tell them the truth, is the relationship going to be destroyed? What are they going to think of me? How is it going to go? I mean, many of us do that, and we calculate outcomes. And based upon those outcomes, we make present decisions. Sometimes, and oftentimes, the wrong decisions. But at that particular point, the Lord also impressed upon me, by the way, in calculating that out, I was inclining myself not to tell the whole truth. But then the Lord impressed upon me again, listen, Dan, trust me with the outcomes, and you simply do what you know needs to be done. Trust me with the outcomes. And so, with a very weak faith, trusting that, okay, I'm going to trust the outcome to you, I went and I I divulged. And I told the whole truth. Did some of it not go well? Yeah, some of it didn't go well. But I will tell you that the Lord met me in a unique and wonderful way. And that when we're willing to trust him with the outcomes of things, say, okay, I'm just going to trust you in the moment and leave the outcomes up to you, that there may be hard times in that moment, but when there is trust, it always leads to a deeper realization of God's goodness and his grace. There's blessing on the other side. And I look back in my life, and that's been true every time. So that's one of the things I think can... Abraham faced the unknown. We face the unknown. We can't control outcomes. But God just simply says, hey, will you trust me in this? Trust me with the outcome. And if you can trust him with the outcome, then it's far easier to simply just take him at his word and say, okay, I'm going to trust you in this. Another obstacle that keeps us from just following God's leadership and just in trust, following his instruction, um, has to do with letting go of the things that we love the most. And consequently, the potential pain and suffering involved in that. Um, Here we have, in both instances... Uh, a certain amount of giving up what would naturally be loved. Um, Abraham leaving family, kindred, home, um, which would be difficult for anybody if they liked the place that they lived. And most importantly is, is the offering of his, of his own son. Now again, I put that in modern context with me filling in all the blanks that, that he was an emotional person just like us. He was a human. Um, he would have felt just like you and I would feel if we were asked to do something with one of our children. Unbelievable. And yet, amazingly enough, he was willing to let go of what he loved and willing to go through the 
commensurate pain and loss that that offering would entail. And therein, I think, lies a, another obstacle for us oftentimes is that our, 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 our obedience will only go as far as, as we're willing to trust God with the things that we actually love the most. Or it'll only go so far as the pain is willing to allow. But if there's a willingness to, to listen, my, my children really are yours, and I'm not just saying that. Um, and, and if you must take one of them, then, then I am going to trust you with the pain of it too. I'm going to trust that you're sovereign in this and that your sovereignty is a good and loving sovereignty. And you're not going to, I'm not going to find out on the other side that you've, you've hosed me over, but I trust you. Uh, take uh, marriage as an example of, of this particular obstacle. Since uh, the church continues to be ravaged by the tragedy of, of disintegrating marriages, um, I think most of us know who have been in the church for a while that there are really only two conditions upon which one should leave a marriage. Justifiable conditions. That the emphasis within Scripture over and over and over again is that you stick it out. That you humble yourself and learn how to forgive and learn how to be patient. Learn how to pray for each other. Learn what it means to persevere and endure. To have the fiber of one's life tested and, and transformed by the difficult context of a relationship. And I think most of us get that and most of us will try that and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust that that's true until the pain factor either becomes so great or it becomes so difficult or somebody new comes along that has promises greener grass. And at that moment, the, the pain, the unbearable pain of it all becomes the, the anchor that sinks your faith. All right, Lord, instead of saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to trust you. This is hard. It's hard for Abraham. Leave, sacrifice. I know this is hard. But I am going to trust that you're in this with me. I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing. And even if my spouse pulls the ripcord, I want to give it my all because I trust you. I trust you. If we can get to the point where we're willing to let go of the outcomes, all right, Lord, I trust you with the outcome of this, and we're willing to let go of what we love the most and recognize that in the pain and the suffering that may come with the loss of it, that he's still being good to us and that we can trust him. If that's the case, then, then, then we actually stand a chance of, of, of obedience in a way that honors him because it comes from our trust. See, that's, that's how faith is to live in the kind of the meat or the nitty-gritty of life. Um, day by day, we face decisions. Am I going to trust you with the outcomes? And am I going to trust you at your word? Um, am I going to trust you in the pain? Am I going to trust you in what I love? Am I going to trust you? It's day-to-day living. Do I trust you? You know, a lot of people failed to follow Jesus when he said, hey, come follow me. And they said, nah, I've got to go bury my father, take care of my family. That is, their hearts were somewhere else. But the heart of faith, and as it grows, it learns that, you know what? Jesus is, is better than my family. That Jesus is worth whatever sacrifice or pain must be suffered because he's life itself. And when that's kind of the center of your faith and you're willing to trust in the Lord, then you will, like Abraham, be able to follow God's lead. Just trust him. He's your king. He's good. He never makes mistakes. He just asks you to trust him. Trust his grace is sufficient for you in the moment and the blessing is in your future. 
That's one way faith lives, is that faith follows God's leadership. It obeys. Another way, second way, that faith lives is that faith waits for God's timing. Say that again. Faith waits for God's timing. The sense of time in this chapter and in Abraham's life is enormous. Um, We're told that by the time he actually had a child which was promised to him, um, this is the way that Hebrews describes it, he was um, as good as dead. (laughs) Now, we don't like to be called old in our culture, but imagine being called as good as dead. Uh, We're told by the history of the Bible he was 100 years old when when the son finally came. And his wife was 90 years old. So it was a miracle. Um, But it was a miracle that came over a length of time. We're also told that in terms of the promise of a home, a place to live, a promised land, so to speak, we're told that they died, this is verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from, and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles and so forth. That is, they were required to wait. Wait for the son, Isaac, and wait for the homeland, which they died waiting. One of the things that you read over and over again is that, that you cannot rush God, his timing. You can't rush how he works in history. He decided he was going to unfold this great plan over millennia of time. Not over a span of 10 years, 20 years, but thousands of years. Because you can't rush his work in history. You can't rush his work in other people's lives. You can't rush his work in a church, and you can't even rush his work in your own life. And I find that requirement where the Lord's like, wait, just wait. Trust my timing in it. It's perfect. I know what I'm doing. I'm the master planner of the whole thing. Even Ephesians, you know, in the fullness of time, he made his plan known. He had a time and a date in mind, and he wasn't going to reveal it before then. It was going to be on that time, because you cannot rush the Lord in his working in life. Now, that is a very fit and, I think, relevant, powerful word for a culture that is conditioned not to wait. Uh, A number of observers, you know this just by simply experiencing it, have noticed that we live in a technological age where everything is instantaneously at our fingerprint uh, tips. Now you can download movies instantaneously, download MP3s instantaneously. You can have overnight delivery and have something that you want the next day. You know, people want instant results. They want instant gratification. That's, That's what it is. We in this age, more than any other age, are able to manage and control the things around us, giving us instant control. And the irony is that it seems like people, though they have more control, to have things in their own timetable and timing, are more frustrated and things are more out of control than ever. I think we would all do really well to... Oh, by the way, when we do take control, we, we take that conditioned lack of patience. That's, that's, it's built into us, which is why we get frustrated if we have to wait. You know, get on the freeway and you get behind somebody going 45, you get frustrated. Like, what are they doing? They're hanging me up. Or you get in line and the checker who's checking your groceries is going super slow. Just get frustrated because we don't like to wait. We're conditioned that way, though. And that, when you put that kind of pressure on relationships and other people, demanding that you change now, or even demanding that my life change now, or demanding that things have to change in my timing, well, then everything tends to fly apart. 
Because we're managing our world in a way that only God can manage. I think all of us would do well to, to um, plant a garden. If for no other reason than to connect us back to our agrarian roots where we have to wait for things. You know, that you plant tomatoes, they don't come out instantaneously. Tomatoes or squash or cucumbers or whatever. And the farmer had to learn how to wait. All you can do is fertilize and water. Or if you believe in playing Bach or Mozart to your plants, that that helps and do that. But by and large, we exercise very little control over our plant's growth and the, and the production of tomatoes. But to plant and simply wait and watch that really God is going to grow that plant and have it bear fruit in its own sweet time. And to learn what it is to, to depend on something else to make things grow. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, I think, a crucial lesson of faith. Is that, like Abraham, waited on the Lord in trust. Trusted, hey, it's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come. It's still going to come. So faith is willing to wait on God's timing and not trying to rush him. There's a lot of freedom in that. I mean, to the... To the single person, for example, who really has a desire to meet Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, might wait for a while, but it's easy to get hasty and enter into a marriage that then explodes. Rather than trusting that the Lord has it in control, he knows all of the single males and females out there, and he is good, and if he intends for you to have someone that will make life better for you in the proper way, then he'll bring it. But also trusting that if the answer is no, then he's going to satisfy your loneliness in another way. And that, that you will learn things about yourself and about him that you would never known if you didn't allow him to control things. And just to wait on him. Now, a little caveat. I know that not all single people want to be married. Some of them are content to just be single, which is, is great. Uh, or in, in our parenting, you know, to realize that, that we, can't, we can't force the outcomes of spiritual fruit in our children. That's not up to us. We can fertilize and we can water, but ultimately the spiritual outcomes and the growth of our kids is up to the Lord. And to recognize that he has a timetable with that. And instead of trying to control it and, and squishing the plant, so to speak, just, you know, pray and fertilize and water and, and wait upon the Lord's timing. Um, life is a lot less frustrating if you can wait on the Lord in those ways. Um, or, you know, in marital relationships. You know, do, do spouses have flaws? Absolutely. Until we enter the new creation, your wife's going to be messed up and so are you as a husband. Just the way it's going to be. Now you can try and speed up the timetable of God changing your spouse by nagging and shouting and manipulating, but in the end, I think you'll, all, you'll end up with maybe short-term results with long-term dysfunction. Because you went about it the wrong way, not in the way of faith. It's like, you know, my husband's heart, my wife's heart is in God's hands. And I'm going to influence and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and I'm going to speak when I need to, but I am not taking control. I'm going to trust the Lord and wait upon the Lord to deal with it. That allows, actually, relationships to breathe and enjoy, chill out a little bit. Life is not to be managed by you or by me. I, that, I find that true even in my, my own life. That, you know, I discover a, a new pocket or hidden cavity of, of self-righteousness or arrogance that I didn't see before. And I, I, I'm humbled by it, broken by it, and... You know, sometimes I think, okay, God, now I expect instant change and transformation into some really humble and all-loving person. And when that doesn't happen, I can easily become frustrated and impatient with the Lord. Like, why didn't you change me on the spot? The Lord's like, listen, you can't rush my timing in your life. 
Now, should we pray for change? Should we strive appropriately for change? Influence one another for change? Absolutely. Provided we understand that the one who really changes us, the only one who can heal the soul is the Lord. And the physician has his timing. And it's not on our time. But to wait on him, trusting him with the process. And this is, I, I believe that God's priorities in changing our lives oftentimes are at odds with our priorities in changing our lives. That sometimes we may feel like, well, my, my big issue that I want to change is that I have an a eating a dis, uh, a addiction. I, I like food too much, or alcohol too much, or, or I gamble too much. And, and meanwhile, you're trying to change yourself, probably with the wrong motivation, Meanwhile, the Lord's like, you know, that's not your biggest problem. I'm after something far deeper. I want to crush your self-control, your sense of self-centeredness. And he may allow some things to continue while he deals with other things. All the while resting that the Lord is the one who is the physician of the whole, the healer of the heart. He's the healer of other people. And he has got things under control and he's guiding them by his good, loving grace, and to wait for him. To wait for him. That's, a, that's to me, is, a, is, a, is, a, is one of the truths about how faith lives that digs into life. Not only that we, faith, trust the leadership of God in terms of obedience, but also trusting God's timing and not trying to force our control upon God's, God's time and God's plan. And then the third and, and final one is that trust, trust or faith, um, trust God with our failures. We, faith trusts God with our failures. And this is the counterbalance to the first two points. You know, will we always trust the instructions of the Lord, trust the Lord who gives us instructions and do what is right? We should, but we don't, and we won't. Will we always wait upon the Lord and not try and take control of other people's lives or, or rush God and, and frustrate people and ourselves? No, we won't. We won't. Because our journey is going to be filled with, with, uh, with failures along the way. That's one of the things that, that is very... I don't know if comfort is the right word. Um, but it does bring a sense of comfort to know that, that Abraham was a flawed man. The one that we are looking at. The one who's elevated as a, as a you know, hero of faith at other times lapsed in faith. In fact, every one of the people on this list of chapter 11 were flawed and flawed deeply. Noah couldn't control his drinking, at least on one occasion. Uh, Abraham was a chronic liar. His wife was a scoffer. She laughed at the Lord. Moses committed murder and on one occasion was angry. At least one occasion was angry. You have, uh, let's see, this is Samson, the womanizer, and David, the adulterer, murderer, and manipulator. And they're all on the list. Their journeys are filled with flaws and mistakes and deep moral compromises. Which meant and means to me that they had to trust the Lord even with their failures. 
and to trust in the fact that ultimately God's grace would bring them home by way of the cross, not their moral perfection. What made these men righteous was not that they were morally perfect, but they trusted. They trusted a God who was forgiving, a God who would provide that, that, that substitute. That's what they trusted. They, they trusted him with their failures. Now, any one of these points someone can take and use to the flesh to either be lazy, which is the negative side of waiting, or to say, hey, let's just sin that grace may abound. So if we can trust God with our failures, let's just go on failing. But I trust that those who have the Spirit of God know better than that, and those who do not will not. But they were able to trust the Lord with their failures, their mess-ups. Is that hard? Absolutely. To rest completely on the fact that, that all sin, all of my past failures and all the failures I'm going to commit, all of your past failures and all of your future failures are going to commit, that, that all of that was carried by Jesus to the cross and is therefore done. It's difficult to believe that. Because that's that instinct to want to control things again. I mean, that kind of the humanistic way of dealing with our failures and sins usually comes in one of two ways, both of which are self-centered. Uh, one way of dealing with personal failures to, to wallow in a sense of self-pity and self-loathing, which is really just a form of self-absorption and self-centeredness and doubt. That's how many of some of us respond some of the times. It's just, man, how, how could I do that? Well, suck it up. You did it because you're a sinner. The other way of dealing with it is kind of going into this resolve to work harder mode where you enter some kind of a self-imposed penance. You ever notice people like to clean a lot or work hard after they've failed? I think that's, that's instinctual. After you mess up, you want to work hard because you want to feel better about yourself. There may be a short-term profit in that, but it won't last long because once you feel better about yourself, you'll lapse back into the same old you. Neither of those are, are, are appropriate ways of dealing with our failure or our, our guilt of either wallowing or, or, or trying to wrestle it back to feel good about ourselves. Both of, both of those are arrogant, self-centered, and prideful, and completely doubting. The other way is just to say, all right, Lord, now, it's hard for me to believe this, but I just have to trust when Jesus said it was finished, it is finished. And that your grace is sufficient enough, though it was costly and cost you the dear life of your son, I have to trust that you've forgiven me for it. And by the way, when that, that sense that God has really forgiven us by way of the cross, it brings a sense of humility and a desire to obey. Those who abuse grace and say, well, you know, it's, it's free and it's easy, so I might just go out and do whatever I want to do and live how I want to live, doesn't understand the cost or get it in their heart. But here you have, you know, ways in which faith lives. We all struggle with our failures, as they did. How do we deal with our failure? Because we are going to fail. We have to trust. Lord, I trust that you have freed me from my sin. So when you kind of pan back and realize that how, did, how, how does faith live in a fallen world where we face adversities from without, failures from within? Well, you know, this is how faith lives. It follows the Lord's lead. It trusts him and obeys him. Um, 
that faith is willing to wait. Wait upon God. Wait that he's in control. Wait that he's good. And when we fumble and stumble along the way, to trust once again that God's grace is sufficient even for failures that he has forgiven us. And grace is, is sufficient for all these things. And the truth of the matter is every day we're supposed to live in faith uh, in every way. Faith just isn't about my sin. It's about all of life. It includes my sin, but it's all of life. Am I going to trust what he says and trust his leadership in my life? Trust that he's good? Am I going to trust the timing in his life, my life, my kid's life, my, my, uh, my friend's life, this church's life? Am I going to trust the Lord with our failures and say, hey, listen, thank you, Lord, for being so good and so gracious? Because when we live by faith in that kind of all-sufficient grace, then we learn to live in the freedom of it. And that, my friends is how faith works. That's what he's asking of us. Will you just trust what I do, what I have done, what I will do? Will you trust? Is there something that, uh, some unknown, some outcome that you're afraid of keeping you from just trusting the Lord? Something that you hold dear, some pain that you've experienced you don't know you can trust the Lord with? It's keeping you from just, all right, God, I get to trust you with this. Maybe this morning is, is one step towards letting it go and hearing a simple message from the Lord saying, listen, trust me. Just trust me with the outcomes because I'm good and I am in control of your life. We spent a couple of moments just praying to the Lord and searching your heart and see if there's something that he wants to say to you 